here in John chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have a, uh, a series of several consecutive days, and then what happens in the space of a week. <clears throat> so last week, I preached from verses 19 through uh, 34, and uh, that, that encompasses two days. So beginning in verse 19 is day 1, verse 29 is the next day. Day two, verse 35, the next day, it's day three, verse 43, the next day, that's day four, and then it takes a little while to get from Judea to Galilee, about a three days walk, and so chapter two begins with, on the third day there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. So all of, uh, much of chapter one and the first part of uh, chapter two all takes place in the space of seven days. When I was a young man, I had acne pretty severely. And uh, I have, I've never had a a problem with self-confidence. The Lord blessed me with parents that were very affirming. And uh, and, uh, so I've, I've never just felt awkward or ashamed of myself. I don't ever remember having a period of my life like that. But I do remember feeling awfully bad about all the acne that I had. And I remember begging God that he would please heal me of that acne. And uh, so it, it, did, it did bother me. <clears throat> and uh, there, was, there was an event uh, where I hoped that I would be able to see what my face looked like without acne. And that was my senior picture. Because back in those days, and I'm I'm sure that photographers still do it, I mean just uh, the average nine-year-old with a computer can do it today, can make blemishes disappear. But I had never, since I'd entered uh, puberty, I'd never seen my face without pimples. And so one day I went to Gold Studio and got my senior, senior, senior portrait taken and then eagerly awaited the pictures to come back to see what would I look like if I never had pimples. And uh, so uh, that, that happened. I still have those pictures, you know, no, no pimples on my face. I, I still have trouble with acne. I noticed today I've still got a couple of pimples on my nose. Just, just proves that I'm youthful, I guess. <clears throat> But of course, uh, all of you know, that, that's a story like from ancient history. That's the kind of story that you hear your grandparents tell you, young people, because you have access to tools where you can take a picture of yourself and you can make your face look slimmer or you can make yourself look taller. There are all these things that you can do with your portrait. And I know that sometimes people doctor up pictures of themselves and put them on dating websites. And uh, they, they hope to lure someone into uh, biting on that bait, I suppose. Wow, he's really handsome. And then uh, we meet at a restaurant and a guy comes in that doesn't look anything like the portrait. I just think, what, what did you expect is going to happen? One day they're going to meet you face to face and they're going to see what you actually look like. Uh, I think that there are 
Well, I, I think that one of the problems that is plaguing our nation today is that people are living too much in a virtual world and not in face-to-face real life. I think that just has all kinds of uh, social implications, and there are all kinds of uh, people who are growing up weird because they're not around real people, and uh, that they live they live in an unreal world, have have trouble determining the difference between what is real and unreal. There is a uh, a fairly well known story written by. Uh, I think it was written by Hans Christian Andersen. It's in the Harvard Classics, uh, and I read it several years ago. It's about a a poor, starving artist who uh, was in his uh, second-story flat one day, and the windows were open, there was a little balcony, and across the way he could hear that there was a party going on. And he thought, oh, I I wish I could go to that party. I, I wish that someone had invited me to that party. And uh, he said it out loud, and then someone spoke up and said, I'll go for you. And uh, he was surprised, but it was his shadow. His shadow had said, I will go to the party for you. And so he said, okay. And so the shadow goes across the street and attends the party, and then the shadow doesn't come back. And he doesn't see his shadow for years. And he continues to be a starving artist. And uh, one day there's a knock at his door, and... Uh, he opens the door, and it's his shadow. And uh, his shadow is well-dressed and obviously uh, in good health. And his shadow says, I've traveled all around the world. I, I've seen places, and uh, I, I have come back to see if you would like to go with me. I can take you to these places. But here's the deal, the shadow says. Now you must be my shadow. And while that story was written hundreds of years ago, I think that it's uh, true of what is happening very often today with the virtual persona that people create online and the virtual lives that they're living online, that the real lives actually become a shadow to what they're living in, in virtual reality. Well, all of this is an introduction... Uh, to a passage of Scripture that several times has someone saying to someone else, come and see. I don't have anything to hide here. Come and see for yourself. And uh, I think that Christianity is a religion that says, you're welcome to look under the hood. This past week, Lorenzo was talking about going to help Christian Uh, buy a car, and he said, I know to look under the hood and look in in the transmission to see if they've put sawdust in there. That's a way that they will uh, try to to cover up a transmission problem. Christianity says, come, look under the hood. Check to see if we put sawdust in the transmission. You're welcome to come back in the kitchen and see the way that we prepare this food. You can go to the farm from which we source our, our ingredients if you want to. Come and see is the message that I'm going to emphasize from this passage of Scripture today. I want to read you a quote uh, by a famous man, Oliver Cromwell. He was the Lord Protector in England for several years during the 1600s. Of course, there were no photographs in that day. And when he was sitting for his portrait, here is what he told the portrait maker. You probably heard part of this, but he, Oliver Cromwell said uh, to the artist, Mr. Lely, 
I desire you would use all your skill to paint my picture truly like me and not flatter me at all. But remark all these roughnesses, pimples, warts, and everything as you see me. Otherwise, I will never pay you a farthing for it. Paint me just exactly the way that I am. And I think that uh, that is uh, what, what we find Jesus saying here and what we find Jesus' followers saying here. And that's what I say to you, is that Christianity is a, is a religion that bears a close examination, bears out a close scrutiny. I don't want to present Christianity to you in a way that after two weeks of being a Christian, you say, well, I never expected this. There will be times, as the choir sang in the opening number, when the Lord will lead you through the fire. And it's not that you've done something wrong, it's that sometimes following the Lord leads you through the fire. But there are promises that when you go through the fire, the Lord will be with you and and protect you. Even if it means that you die, He is still protecting you. Now in this passage of Scripture, there are Four times that I think someone is saying, come and see. And then I think that the passage concludes with Jesus saying, I see you. And at the risk of plaguing you with Bachman-Turner overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. So that's the, uh, the, the final point. So, but first of all, there are several instances where someone says, come and see. Let me read this text. I'll point them out to you as I go through. The first time when someone says, come and see, is in the words of John the Baptist in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. So that's the first one. Look look at Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. That's the second one. Come and you will see, Jesus says to these two disciples. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Uh, which is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So there's my third time when apparently Andrew said to Simon, Come and see. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So that's the fourth and the plainest instance of the come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You see that? We've been seeing people say, come and see Jesus, and now Jesus says, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And here's the, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Several years ago, there were some boys who lived in our neighborhood who were a little on the ornery side. And one day, I looked out of our picture window that faces the street, and I saw these two boys dressed in camouflage, if I remember right, trying to hide themselves in the trees that are on, around our yard, and they were looking into our house with a pair of binoculars. And so I went and I got my binoculars and I stood in the window and looked back at them. And I could see them as they put the binoculars down, whispered to one another and then took off. So that's a little the way that I have set up this passage of Scripture. First of all, we are looking at Jesus and then we are going to see that Jesus turns his gaze upon us. And so... Uh, with that in mind, let's look at these, these four instances when someone says, come and see. And the first one is when, G, when John the Baptist says to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God. Now, I think apparently John had been explaining to his disciples what he, John's role, was in God's kingdom and that he was coming as the forerunner. Now, John was a very talented man, and there's no doubt about it. And there were multitudes that came to hear John the Baptist preach. And so that makes it all the more admirable that John is willing to take the place that he does, and he says to his disciples, essentially, you need to stop looking at me. You need to start looking at Jesus. It takes a, it takes a strong person to do that when when the kind of riches or the kind of fame or the kind of influences is right at your fingertips, if you would just go a little beyond what God has sanctioned in your life, just a little bit further, and you can have all of this wealth, and then in integrity you draw back and say, no, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than have riches untold. And so on. I, I would rather have a clear conscience and sleep at night knowing that I have done the right thing than to have all of this wealth and all of these privileges uh, obtained in an underhanded way. And so John the Baptist is admirable again when he says, Stop looking at me and turn your attention to Jesus. He knows that if he is faithful in his task, he is going to work himself out of a job. Now, it'll be several weeks before we come upon this, but uh, John's disciples are a little bit jealous that Jesus is getting so much attention. And they come to John one day and they say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. 
And uh, John the Baptist says, didn't I tell you that I am sent ahead of the bridegroom? And when the, bro- the friend who attends the bridegroom hears the bridegroom's voice, he's glad. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. So I got to see Allie and Michael get married on Friday night. And one of the most touching parts is when Daddy Phil gives his little girl away. And so you all have seen that. Some of us have experienced that. And that's hard to do. And uh, it's difficult for many reasons. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said, "When, when you allow your daughter to walk out the door to go on a date with some boy... It's like handing a Stradivarius over to a gorilla. And uh, you kind of you feel that way, you know, when you're handing, handing your, your daughter. Stradivarius is a very, very nice violin. So Stradivarius is like the most expensive violin in the world. And uh, so handing your daughter over to another man, you feel a little bit like you're handing over a Stradivarius to a gorilla. <laughs> and... Uh, but it's not always that way. You know, sometimes you have confidence that the man is, uh, is going to be a good husband to your, your daughter. And uh, so, but there's that moment when, you know, you, you lift the veil, you, you, you kiss your daughter. You, you hold her close, you kiss her, you say, I love you, say some of those sweet things. But then you take her hand and you put it in the hand of the man that she's marrying. That was the task of John the Baptist. That was what John the Baptist did. Through his ministry, he gathered people who were ready to receive the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom comes, then he says, you need to stop looking at me. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And so there are two disciples who hear what John has said. And they, they start following after Jesus. Jesus turns around and he sees them following. And he says... It's really kind of blunt. It's, uh, you know, what do you want? It's kind of, what do you want? I, I think the, the English Standard Version does a good job of softening that. Or, you know, how can I help you? Is there, is there something that you want? Because I don't think that Jesus was being mean-spirited at all when he turns around and says, what do you want? And so they say, I kind of get the impression that they're a little tongue-tied and don't exactly know what to say. And so they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And, uh, and then Jesus says, come and you will see. So that's the second instance in this text when Jesus says, come and you will see. And you know what impresses me so much about this? Is that Jesus has got time without, without planning. You know, he doesn't say, hey, uh, you know, make a schedule with me next week. I'll see if I can cram you into my schedule. It's like Jesus has got time. These these two guys come and they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. And they they went and saw. They had time to go. They didn't say, let me clear my schedule first. I think most of us need to feel a little rebuke right here. That our lives are crammed so tight that if two people who are complete strangers say to us in a tongue-tied way, I'd love to spend some time with you, and all they can get out is, where do you live? 
that we at least sometimes have the time to say, well, why don't you come on over? We're just having bologna sandwiches for supper, but you're sure welcome to have one. Just come on over. There needs to be a lot more of that in most of our lives. Now, I know that I have responsibilities and you have responsibilities, and as, uh, as this conviction came bearing down upon me yesterday afternoon as I was making final preparation to preach this sermon, I asked myself, is what I'm doing this afternoon what God wants me to do? Is it a good use of time? I have, I've set aside this time when hopefully as a shepherd for the Bullet Lick Baptist Church, I, I give to you food, things that will cause you to think, things that will nourish you. I have have the opportunity to, to preach to a hundred and so many people this morning, and it's a big responsibility. If someone just comes walking into the yard right now and, and takes up all of my afternoon, should I give it to him? And my, my perspective on that is no. It's possible for me to serve one person on the spur of the moment But then what am I going to do when I stand up here on Sunday morning and I've got an unpolished little bit of watery oatmeal to feed you and not the substance of the Word of God? So feel conviction, but don't don't make it think, don't let it make you think that you have always got to drop everything at the drop of a hat to do Uh, something that someone might suddenly pop into your life. The conviction that you and I should feel is that so often our lives are consumed with trivial nonsense, not sermon preparation, not some other kind of service that's going to benefit many people, but just just trivial nonsense that takes up our lives so that we, we never have time when someone comes and says, hey, where do you live? That we can never say, Come, and you will see. Well, they went and they spent that day with Jesus. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so uh, in that part of the world, you know, it's about 12 hours of daylight. So there's a little bit of the day left. I guess before the day is over, Philip, well, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, goes and he finds, he finds his brother Peter and says, you got to come and see who I met. It's possible that Peter had, had been at the river the day before when John was baptizing and had heard John say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's possible that Peter's curiosity had already been piqued and stirred up by what he had heard John say, or it's possible that Andrew is just coming to his brother Peter. At this time, he's called Simon. He comes to Simon and he says, you got to come and meet this guy. So this is the third instance of come and see. You have got to come. Oh, who is it? Simon, it's the Messiah. Come and see. I, I want you to meet him. And I think, what a delightful example and perspective on evangelism. Instead of feeling like, oh man, I need to talk to these people about Jesus or their blood's going to be on my hands... Instead, just out of an overflow of joy to say, you have got to meet Jesus. Uh, Maybe not those exact words. You may feel like you are being corny or 
theatrical if you were to say something like that. But uh, surely there is something genuinely that you feel about Jesus and that you can let comments drop sometimes to say, you have really got to give Jesus a chance. You really need to come and see what a difference he can make in your life. He has meant so much to me. You know, it's amazing what small, weak witnesses God sometimes uses to accomplish surprising conversions. I've told you before that my dad was led to Christ when someone rebuked him for using bad language. He was on a bus going to a football game and someone said, Oric, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And the boy said, you sure don't talk like one. My dad said that really bothered me. And uh, the, a few weeks before my dad died, we didn't know that he was going to die in the next two months, but a few weeks before my dad died, my sisters and I went with him to Mount Vernon, Illinois, where he was being inducted for a second time into their high school athletic hall of fame. And uh, there were just uh, two or three tottering old men in their 80s who had been part of that football team that they were honoring that had played back in 1952. And uh, one of these old men comes up to my dad and my two sisters and me, and my dad gets choked up. And he says, children, I'd like to introduce you to the man who led me to the Lord. It was that boy. It was that boy who said, you sure don't talk like one. And uh, so it's just amazing what weak testimonies. Jesus visits with the woman at the well. The woman goes back into the town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Man, you talk about a weak sermon by a bad preacher. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But the Bible specifically says that many people from that town became believers because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And then they came to Jesus. They heard Jesus teaching. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not only because of what you said, but also because we have heard him for ourselves. And we know that this man is the Savior of the world. So God can use our, our little expressions just come and see. I'd love for you to come to church with me. Oh, that church down there is, all these churches are full of hypocrites. Well, our church is different. Come and see. Ah, oh, you know, all, there's so many religious leaders, you know, who's right? Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus. Come and see. Oh, you know, the Bible, it's just, uh, it's just another book. A lot of people got together and decided they were going to write that. Well, I just challenge you. Why don't you read the Bible for one month and pretend like it's the Word of God and just see what happens after one month. Why don't you just come and see? When I was uh, teaching English composition at Marshall University, I had a class of maybe 30 students, and I told them, uh, when it was time to do a book review, I said, instead of asking you to buy a book and read a book, I'm going to have everyone do a review on the same book. And the book is the Gospel of John in the Bible. So can everyone get a Bible? Everyone got access to a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, I'll give you one. And so everybody had access to a Bible. 
And uh, then the next week or two, whenever the assignment was due, I, uh, I met with each student individually. I had read their papers and went over their papers with them. And out of that class of 30 students, there were two students who wrote something very similar to this in their papers. I never knew anything about Christianity before I read this book. But after having read this book, I want to become a Christian. You think the Bible is just another book? Come and see. You think, that, uh, you think that some course of obedience is going to result in a disaster in your life? Come and see. You think that tithing is going to bankrupt you? You think that honoring the Lord with your income is, is going to strap you financially? The Lord says, why don't you just put that to the test? Come and see. And so when Andrew goes to Peter, he, he says to him, come and see. Well, the fourth time that we see come and see here is when Philip finds Nathanael and says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was kind of a skanky part of the country. So all of the, the knowledgeable people lived in Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. It's in the southern part of the country. And then as you go north out of Judea, you go through Samaria like ill. And then as you continue to go through Samaria, you come to Galilee. And Galilee is where the skanky people live. Uh, it's kind of the way I think... Uh, Galilee is a little bit like much of the country the northerners look at Kentucky's. Like all of you people drink moonshine and are go barefoot. And then even within, uh, even within Kentucky, there are certain counties like uh, the people say, well, you know, there has been a really, really great preacher that has come out of Wolf County. I don't know if you all know anything about Wolf County. Okay, let's use Bullock County then. <laughs> there has been a really, there has been an, an amazing work of God in Bullock County. And much of the rest of Kentucky would say, Bullock County? Can anything good come out of there? And so that's the way Nathaniel responded when, when Philip told him, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And Nathaniel said, what you and I need to say, come and see. And so Nathaniel goes, and, and when Jesus sees him, now the binoculars are turned around. So far, we've been seeing people say, come and see. And now, now Jesus says, I see you. So when, when Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, <coughs> he gives him a, a pretty strong compliment. He says, here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, we don't know what was going on under the fig tree. I don't know if it was good. I don't know if it was bad. But Jesus reveals, I saw you then. And it was so convincing that Nathaniel exclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And I read that and I think, 
how ready they were to believe, how quickly they were convinced on such, on such meager evidence. But it was enough. The two disciples of John, they hear Jesus. Then one of them, Andrew, goes to his brother and says, we found the Messiah. You've got to come and see. Philip goes the next day, says, we found the Messiah. You have got to come and see. And then Nathaniel walks up. He's skeptical. I don't know one of these Nazareth boys is ever going to amount to anything. And then Jesus gives him, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. And suddenly he's convinced. And then I feel ashamed of my own unbelief. I feel ashamed of how often I am doubtful about things. When I have so many mountains of evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. He is alive. He is the Savior. It is a worthwhile life to live my life in devotion to Jesus. I have so much evidence of that. And yet there are still these dark clouds of doubt that come penetrating into my mind. And I dare say it's the same way with some of you. We're far too skeptical. We're far too slow to believe. We need to become like little children. Like these little, these young first disciples, these first followers of Jesus. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then finally, Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. So he says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? Well, he is making reference to an Old Testament story, something that happened to Jacob when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau. Jacob had done his brother Esau really bad, so bad that Esau was going to kill him. And so Jacob has to run away from home. He's not a little boy. He's a full-grown man. And as he gets away from Esau, he, he lies down in a place to sleep for the night. And during the night, God gives him a vision. And it's a vision of a stairway or a ladder. And, he's, and in this vision, the angels of God are coming down and they are going up on this on this stairway. And Jacob wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place and I never knew it. And he says, I, I am going to make you my God forever. And if I ever come back, then I will uh, consecrate this place to you. This is Bethel. This is the house of God. This is Peniel. I have seen the face of God in this place. And he's, he's away for many years, but then eventually God calls him to come back to Bethel, back to the place where he has seen this vision of the stairway. Okay, so there are angels going up and down a stairway, and now Jesus is saying, I am that stairway. What does it mean? It means that this is, you want to go to heaven? This is the way. Jesus is the stairway. So heavenly messengers Come down from heaven and teach you the way. So if you want to go to heaven, then this ladder, this son of man, this stairway that Jesus is talking about is the way to go. 
So when he says you ain't seen nothing yet, he's saying you have become, you have become convinced of much truth, but there are still more astounding, life-changing things that you are going to see. And I can say the same thing to you. Many of us in here have taken the first steps on the road of faith, but continue to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to try to be like him, to be so welcoming as he was, to turn and say to people sometimes, come and see. And to say to other people, you've got to come and see what I have experienced in Christ. Come and see. And there will be yet more wonderful, amazing things that are revealed. For eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Come to Jesus. Come and see. And then I tell you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.